This morning, as we come once again to the study of God's Word in the book of Acts, I want us to begin by considering the familiar image of the farmer going out to sow. The analogy of farming to the workings of the kingdom of God is so often used in Scripture and so well known by Christians that it's become part of Christian jargon, planting seeds, sowing and reaping, bearing fruit. It's certainly not a bad thing that we remember the words of Scripture to such a degree. I would hope that we do associate God's Word with our daily lives in such a way. But how often do we make such a comparison mindlessly, without thinking it through? Let's dig into the farmer analogy a little bit this morning. When a farmer goes out to sow his fields, what is he hoping for? At the end of the day, he's hoping for a crop that makes his efforts worth it. But in the process of bringing forth that harvest, the farmer is also hoping for a great many other things, both in the positive and the negative sense. He's hoping that the weather is favorable and that water is readily available. He's hoping that pests or disease might be avoided through diligent effort or providential mercy. He's hoping that his health and strength will not be hindered as he tends his fields. In biblical times, and even in some places today, the farmer hopes that other men won't come and steal his harvest. There's a lot that can go wrong for a farmer, and one of the most uncertain times for a crop is when it is newly planted. When those first shoots begin to poke out of the ground, they're often vulnerable to extreme heat or cold, and they require rich soil, plentiful water, and adequate sunshine to fuel their rapid but tenuous first days or weeks of growth. Do you see where the analogy is heading? Today, in Acts chapter 20, we find Paul in a similar position to a farmer contemplating recently sown fields. Asia, Macedonia, and Greece are all now dotted with fledgling churches full of baby Christians. How does Paul respond to these tender shoots? Might we gain something from looking at how Paul ministers to the churches? Might we see in those churches a reflection of our own needs? And perhaps, might we understand a little better how the true farmer, the one whose crop Paul is merely tending, brings forth his harvest? Let's look to God's word this morning and see what the Lord has for us. God, it is only when you speak that life is given. We pray now that you would speak through this time, that your spirit would be present, both in the speaking and the hearing, and that you would receive glory from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last several weeks in our study of Acts, we've covered quite a large period in the life and ministry of Paul and his companions. Luke's pacing has remained steady, moving us as readers along as he explains about the building of the church throughout the Greek and Roman world. And as Paul is engaged in this dynamic work, performing miracles, facing opposition, and bringing the revelation of the gospel to many, Luke doesn't neglect to bring us back around again and again to certain key components of the story. We saw the repeated refrain again in chapter 19 that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This, on the back of the rather shocking story of the seven sons of Siva, a reminder to us that without the Holy Spirit, we are not fit to contend with the powers that wage war against us. Last week, we saw another repeated point of emphasis as we looked at the riot in Ephesus that the change that the gospel brings in the life of the believer will be opposed by the world, and that being a threat to the world 
is not something we should shy away from. Chapter 20 begins with Paul departing Ephesus, which is on the central coast of the region of Asia. In just a couple verses, we see him travel up to and down through Macedonia, arriving in Greece. His stay in Greece is relatively short, and his departure plans are changed by further opposition. So, we get another few verses, and Paul has retraced his steps back up through Macedonia, and then back down almost to where he started in Ephesus. Thank you for the quick and dirty biographical exposition, Dr. Luke. But what's the point? Well, look at what Paul is doing during this there and back again journey. Before Paul even leaves Ephesus, we read in verse 1 that he encourages the disciples there. Then in verse 2, we read that in Macedonia, as he's traveling, he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. The them here refers to the churches in those regions, churches that Paul had planted. Paul, who some might say is the single greatest evangelist in Christian history, is not making this journey to seek the lost and claim new territory for the kingdom, but to retread the same ground, to bring encouragement. And this is something that we need to take note of this morning. Paul did not build his legacy on great preaching, but through church planting. We get the sense from Paul's own writings that he did not see himself as a natural preacher. He states explicitly in 1 Corinthians that his strategy was one of plain speech. And he confesses in his writing to the Corinthians that he was fearful among them. A fact Luke just backed up in chapter 18 when God told Paul to not be afraid in Corinth. We also read of others, such as Apollos, who were compared to Paul because of their eloquence and presumably his lack thereof. Paul didn't become known as a great Christian evangelist because he was great at introducing people to Christ, but because he was determined that they know Christ in a way that would see them persevere in their faith. Paul nurtured the churches he planted so that they might grow from vulnerable immaturity to strong and fruitful maturity. That's why Paul has any legacy at all. Now, it's easy to simplify evangelism and discipleship, we do it all the time. Part of our natural tendency to try and control things is the temptation to reduce hard realities into easy to-dos. Some might get it in their heads that making disciples is all about getting people to come visit our church. That as long as we've shoehorned a gospel presentation into a conversation with our neighbor, then our job is done. All we do is plant seeds. It becomes an excuse to do the bare minimum of work in the harvest fields, rather than being an expression of trust in God's sovereign power to save. And not only that, but we can tend to treat new believers like they won't face all the same challenges we do when it comes to growing in our faith. We heave a sigh of relief when so-and-so decides to get baptized or become a member of a church. Well, mission accomplished, finally. Is it? We talk often about how Christianity is more than just fire insurance. It's more than just a protection against God's judgment on the final day. Hopefully, we see this in our own lives. But do we see it that way for others as well and provide what they need to live that Christian life? Do you know what is needed for a person to believe in and follow Christ that you can provide? It's encouragement. It's investment. 
It's a commitment to bearing with each other and building each other up. It's guarding one another. And yes, being our brother's keeper. In Ephesus, in verse 1 of Acts 20, the word used for encouragement can also be translated as he embraced them, an expression of affectionate farewell. Paul has made himself close with these people. In verse 2, the word for encouragement is parakaleo, which means to call near, to invite. Think of putting an arm around someone's shoulders. Paul is coming alongside these baby Christians and saying, you can do this. Perhaps you're not a touchy-feely person. Sometimes encouragement is portrayed as condescending or of little value. But think about what Paul is willing to face to bring this encouragement as we look at the first six verses of chapter 20. These cities that Paul is returning to are in some cases areas where he has already been forced to flee. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and wrongfully imprisoned. And then after being released, were asked to leave the city. In Thessalonica, the Jews stirred up a riot. And Paul and Silas were sent away by their friends to escape further violence. In Berea, those same Jews again stirred up the crowds. Paul's fear of preaching may have been the same as many in this room, simply a fear of public speaking. But his apprehension was based on much more than the anticipation of a few eye rolls or some negative reviews. And this is not the first time Paul has revisited dangerous places. He did this already in Asia. Remember when Paul was stoned seemingly to death in Lystra? Well, we read right there in chapter 14 that afterwards he swung back through there as well. And we just read about a riot in Ephesus. Paul knows what these churches are up against. They're up against the same opposition that he has been facing, a world that cannot coexist with the kingdom of God dwelling in its midst. These fledgling churches are under constant social pressure and in some cases direct persecution. They're also contending with their own temptations to fall back into their old sinful ways of living. And Paul is not willing to just sit back and assume that they will weather the storm. They need encouragement. And if we look at our own lives, our own trials and temptations and failures, hopefully we realize that we need encouragement too. In Romans chapter 12, Paul is just beginning to drive home the application of an extended and rich treatise on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do you see how unnatural that is for a human to do? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That runs against the grain, doesn't it? We'd rather indulge our bodies in whatever strikes our fancy. How can we do this? When living out our faith has real risks, how do we stand firm? When our want to just doesn't want to walk in obedient holiness, what is going to bring us back to the place where we are willing to lay down on that altar? Paul has already laid the groundwork in Romans, explaining in detail how the gospel 
is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. God has already given us the power to discipline our will to serve him. But directly after this, Paul begins to teach about the many gifts that God gives to the body. These are literally expressions of God's grace to us. And Paul is sharing them with the Romans in light of the high calling he has just placed upon his readers. Among these gifts is one called exhortation. Exhortation is, funnily enough, another translation of perikaleo. The English word, rather than an arm around the shoulder, portrays something more akin to a passionate fan cheering on an athlete from the sidelines. But the root is the same. It is encouragement. It is helping one another to present our bodies to be a living sacrifice, to push through opposition and look past distractions and keep choosing Jesus. Encouragement is vital. It is a gift of God. And Paul is going to great lengths to bring it where it is needed. Returning to the text, we see that Paul's investment in these churches is not just compassionate, but it is strategic. It is intentional. Look at verse 4. Look who is traveling with Paul. A Berean. Two Thessalonians. Gaius of Derb and Timothy, who came either from there or from Lystra and two from the region of Asia, which contained the seven churches listed in John's Revelation. These men are representative of most of the places that Paul has traveled. We understand them to be disciples of Paul, assisting him in his work and learning from him in the Jewish rabbinical style as they went. And presumably, once their period of instruction was complete, they would either return to their homes and minister or carry on Paul's work in other places. How encouraging to know that before too long these men would be bringing the wisdom and encouragement of Paul to more people in more places in less time than he ever could. Investment, intentionality, and responsibility. Paul saw his missionary work as nothing special, nothing to feel entitled about but rather as his natural duty to the Lord God. He explains this in his first letter to the Corinthians, a church that was twisting the idea of evangelism into some lofty work carried on by specially gifted men. Paul used two analogies to refocus their understanding of what Christian ministry is about. The first was, again, that of farming. He sums up his teaching from chapter 3 by declaring that he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Paul writes this to correct those who would make more of Paul or any other minister than they ought. But then he switches to another analogy to reinforce and expand this teaching, the analogy of a building. Paul declares that his ministry was to build on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, and that the quality of each gospel minister's workmanship would be proved in the end. From 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is born, burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul is ensuring that his work withstands the fire, that those churches he planted stand firm. He is encouraging those who responded to his gospel preaching to be built up into steadfast disciples who live their lives to learn and follow the ways of Christ no matter what comes. And yes, we may not be world-traveling evangelists, but the mission of the disciple of Christ is to make more disciples. How are we doing at that? And how are we going about doing that? Are we encouraging believers and unbelievers alike to put their faith in Jesus? Perhaps this isn't how we would think to go about it. The world needs the truth, and Christians often need to correction, to be sure. But sometimes we start acting like that's all there is. When we look at unbelievers, we start to see only opposition. And when we look at other Christians, or at our churches, or at the church, our first inclination is to judge rather than to encourage. It's very tempting to focus on what is wrong with a church or a church member. But think of how Paul interacts with these churches. Think of his letters. To the Philippians, Paul writes a letter that is full of the joy of the unity of being in Christ, even while he knows that there is conflict in that church. What we know of Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church looks like one extended series of course corrections and contentions. But Paul calls them the church of God, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, enriched in him, not lacking in any gift. Even the Galatians, to whom Paul writes almost as to unbelievers, to whom he confesses his fear that his labor among them was in vain, to whom he goes so far as to write and call them foolish, which is a word not lightly used in Scripture. Paul writes to them about the things of God, expecting that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they can understand the things of God. Paul calls the Galatians a church, which we must remember is another word laden with meaning in God's word. Paul is writing to the bride of Christ, the chosen of God. If God chooses sinners, we would do well to respect his choice and to reflect his heart for his people. Paul is reflecting that loving and gracious heart. He doesn't just preach. He doesn't just teach and correct. Paul, in every church he plants, drives home the sufficiency of the gospel to make what was dead and worthless alive and vibrant with eternal value and realized potential. He expounds excitedly on the power of God to change, to equip, to mature. Paul exhorts the believer, go, go. He exhorts the believer toward hope and zeal for a kingdom life that gladly forsakes sin and obeys God eagerly, 
even while expecting persecution because Jesus is worth it. Paul wants the churches not only to understand the truth of Jesus Christ, but to joyfully entrust their lives to the Father with confidence that he who began a good work in them would bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ at the return of their king. The second half of today's passage is another repetition. It is another crucial reminder to us that for all the mentions of Paul's journeys, Paul's words, Paul's actions, this is not Paul's work. Paul in Troas is doing the same thing he has been doing, making the most of his time in every church he revisits, talking into the evening with his brothers and sisters, prolonging his speech into the middle of the night, encouraging them. But then we come to the story of Eutychus falling asleep and falling out of a third-story window, and it might seem like the narrative has fallen right out the window too. The flow and the pacing of the story have just hit the pavement. And you hold your breath along with the crowd as Paul approaches the body of the young man. What in the world is going on here? There are many takes on the story of Eutychus. Lots of speculation about the wisdom of sitting on a windowsill. And many who are quick to explain that, well, there was likely a lack of air in the room because of all those smoky lamps. You'll even find sermons that try to use this passage to say, don't preach a boring sermon. I'm sorry if I haven't taken that to heart. But the story of Eutychus being raised from the dead is included here to refocus us on the constant underlying bulwark of Acts, that there is a higher power and a larger work occurring in Christ's church, a work that even death cannot hinder. The story concludes with verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Guess which word is translated comforted? Pericaleo. They were encouraged. And of course, we have here another classic Lucan understatement. They were not a little comforted. Think about what this church in Troas has just been given. For all the encouragement of Paul's words and the strength that their bond of love with him could and probably did give, these people have just been reminded that their belief is not in some abstract idea or a figure that sits up on the shelf and whose power you extrapolate from the occurrences around you as best you can. God raises the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And because he was raised, they will be raised. They've just seen it. The resurrection power of the God to whom they are entrusting everything. The church in Troas will never see Paul again. They will likely face persecution, and they will be tempted to keep quiet about their faith or even to fall back into sin. But now they will go through all their days looking at Eutychus as he grows and lives among them, and they will remember that the spirit that Jesus sent to dwell among his followers is a spirit whose power can defeat death. What a testimony. What an encouragement from the spirit. Paul is not facing all this opposition and danger that we read about without the constant assurance of God's Spirit in him. He is not going to face Jerusalem and the expectation of worse to come without the Spirit. 
And we will see in the coming weeks more about that. The churches aren't going to stand firm unless they rely on the Spirit. And we're not going to either unless we do likewise. We need the constant encouragement that the same power that raised Jesus and that raised Eutychus lives in us. It's bigger than our fear. It's bigger than our marital problems. It's bigger than our debt or our pain or our wayward children. Know this. When you receive Christ as Lord, you receive life. Not life in the abstract. Not life as merely the promise of good things to come. You receive life as the constant, abiding, sustaining presence of the life giver, breathing reflections of holiness and bright rays of glory through you into this world as you fully rely on his power and walk boldly in obedience to what you know God has given you to do with the life that he has given you. Do you see what this passage is about? It's about Paul imitating Christ, investing in people and building them up so that they can carry on when he is gone. And it's about the Spirit of God working through Paul, growing and encouraging the churches, and leaving no doubt as to why faith in Christ is well-founded. I hope you believe this morning that faith in Christ is well-founded. I hope that you are soaking in the Word of God and trusting in its truth, being built up, grown up into what God has designed for you. That you are trusting that the blood of Christ cleanses our sin and gives us new spiritual life just as it gave Eutychus back his physical life. I hope that if you are in Christ, you are being strengthened by the encouragement of fellow believers. That if you need encouragement, that you are reaching out and asking for it. And I hope that as you grow and mature by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you are taking on the responsibility of a worker of the harvest, working in God's field, planting and watering his crop for his glory. Let's take a moment of quiet and reflect on this. Reflect on whether we might need encouragement and the encouragement we might have for someone else.